This is Dangerous Vision, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. It was a big shakeup. Uh, let's call it a coup. A shakeup is how Mark Riccobono describes how he got to become the president of the Wisconsin chapter of the National Federation of the Blind. Society um, thinks of blindness as kind of being like the worst case scenario. Now as president of the National Federation of the Blind, Mark is changing minds to change lives. Oh, wait, 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 I got to ask you my employment question. I always see this stat. What we say is not just unemployed, but also underemployed. In this week's Dangerous Vision, Randy talks employment, technology, and Hollywood. How do you think Hollywood's doing in terms of presenting life? Sometimes I feel like... Mark, thank you so much for joining us today on the Dangerous Vision podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Randy. Just say a little about what you do at, uh, at NFB and all, all that. Just uh, fill us in. Sure. Well, I serve as president of the National Federation of the Blind, uh, which means I'm elected by the members of our organization to um, represent the federation in, in uh, all matters, as well as um, serving as the really the CEO for um, what might be thought of as the corporate side of what we do as an organization. The National Federation of the Blind is the oldest and largest organization of blind people, but we're really a membership organization. So I take very seriously the fact that I'm elected to represent the hopes, dreams of blind people and to work on um, raising expectations for blind people every day. So when you say, well, what do I do? Well, uh, in one sense, everything. Uh, (laughs) uh, Working as a a leader in the nonprofit space, you know, you're working on all of the various aspects. And, you know, as a civil rights organization, um, I feel like my most important job on a daily basis is to really be connected with and understand and synthesize what's happening with blind people around the country, yet also project where we want to go, what we hope to do, what we hope to be as a class of individuals in the United States, and then carrying that out throughout the world. Fantastic. Now, I, I'm, uh, I'm the, I've got 100 questions running through my head, but then I remind myself that I should begin at the beginning. For, for the sake of our guests, I'd like to ask, uh, or for the sake of our listeners, I should say, I'd like to ask our guests to talk a little about their uh, you know, experience of blindness and so forth. Uh, I myself uh, was sighted, uh, but with just sort of bad eyesight from retinitis pigmentosa. I uh, thought of myself as just nearsighted, and then you know, decade by decade, it got worse, and now, now I consider myself blind, although I can still see uh, a tiny bit. And obviously, that's a particular experience of blindness that's very different from somebody who was born blind uh, or somebody who had uh, perfect vision for a long time and then lost their sight in an accident or other kinds of experiences. So uh, why don't you tell us a little about your experience and what that was like? Sure. I'll try to give you the shorthand version. Um, uh, there wasn't any incidents of blindness in my family, but by age five, uh, it became clear that I was legally blind. I have uh, aniridia and glaucoma. And, uh, and iridia is a medical term meaning no iridia? Uh, no iris, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no iris of the eye. And yeah. uh, of course, with that, with aniridia comes um, potentially some other structural issues with the eye. And glaucoma is a side effect really of aniridia. A pretty unusual for a someone at age five to have glaucoma. So mm-hmm. I was legally diagnosed as legally blind at age five. So obviously that's wow. 10% of normal vision. But as uh, the years went on, uh, my vision deteriorated. I had probably uh, every surgery uh, known to medicine in the 1980s for uh, glaucoma uh, and, and some of them multiple times. But because I was young, uh, my tissues regenerated very quickly. So I lost vision uh, as I grew up in the 1980s. I uh, lost all of the vision in my left eye just before I went to high school, so when I was in eighth grade. Um, but I, 
you know, I was, uh, didn't know any blind people. I didn't know really what blindness was. I knew it was important to see stuff. So I either uh, worked hard to see it or told people I could see it. And a lot of times when I told people I could see it, they thought, great. And they didn't ask me any more questions. So I like to say uh, I was an expert at faking it. Now, now, where, where, do you grow, where do you grow up, Mark? I grew up in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And what do you think about that, like looking back on it and now knowing what you do as the head of a national organization, do you feel like that was a pretty good place to grow up blind if you have to grow up blind? Or, or, or are there places that, that you particularly uh, think? I mean, there are people probably with young children uh, dealing with vision loss and, and uh, who, who might have the flexibility to live in different places. So I wonder if you have any advice for them. Uh, I think it's a fine place to, to grow up blind. I didn't know I was a blind person, so I wasn't plugged into any of the resources when I was growing up. But uh, later, when I got to know um, members of the National Federation of the Blind, and still some of my very best mentors and friends live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, so I would say it's a great place, especially if you get connected with them. You know, I learned that that it was respectable to be a blind person and that there were skills and techniques I could could learn. And I did that by getting to know successful blind people. So I guess in, in one sense, uh, give Milwaukee a thumbs up because some of the people that really put me on a positive path of um, understanding uh, living as a blind person and pursuing my dreams were there. Uh, but when I was growing up, I didn't, I didn't know what blindness meant or didn't mean in my life. I just absorbed all of the negative misconceptions about blindness. Mm-hmm. Do, do you have siblings? I do not. I'm an only child. Okay, so you're the one. So, so uh, because obviously that that always creates you know interesting situations. Obviously, they can be hugely helpful, but also you know can uh, if 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 one sibling has is dealing with it and others aren't, you know, you have you have the phenomenon right uh, of that right. Yeah. Um, interesting. And so, so, okay. So now you're in high school. How much can you see as a high school student? Because, you know, I I managed to just barely make it through the first two years of graduate school, uh, which are the ones where, in other words, through all my coursework, all, every course I've ever taken, I was still able to, you know, kind of read books and read the blackboard, although just barely, uh, by the end. And I'm always fascinated by people who've been able to be successful in school once their vision got, got below that point. So I'm curious as to, as to when you hit that point and so forth. Oh, well, I mean, uh, uh, by the time I got to high school, I was reading um, large print books with additional magnification. So uh, I don't have any idea. I was probably reading seventy-two point font or something ridiculous. <laughs> so and, I, and did you and did you go to Braille? Did you train in Braille also as a young person? I did not because <laughs> uh, Braille was never offered to me mm. um, until I got to be a senior in high school at which time I was told that uh, they could teach me Braille if I wanted to learn it. Now, Randy, keep in mind that uh, by the time I got to high, uh, uh, my senior year, I worked very hard. I had two study halls, and I was presented with the opportunity to learn Braille if I wanted to. And I thought, well, okay, so I could learn Braille or I could keep my two study halls. Yeah, right. Nope, can't think of any reason to learn Braille. I, I didn't yeah. know why I would want to learn Braille. Now, today, uh, I can't imagine. Uh, I use Braille uh, in, in everything. I have. Oh, so you, pay, so you picked it up later. I did. What motivated you? What made of it? What motivated? Well, I guess the point, did your eyes say get to me? Well, you just no, not, not even so much that. Um, I finally came across, and I when I got to college, I hit. I went to the University of Wisconsin, and um, I was starting to hit a wall. You know, I was used to memorizing everything, but I, that was getting harder, right, because the content was more intense. I couldn't take my own notes. I couldn't read notes from, you know, that I had note, I had a note taker in college, a uh, person that would give me a copy of their notes, but I don't know what good it did. I couldn't read their notes. Right. Um, so it <laughs> was sometimes ask me if I have a pen. I'm like, no, I, I can't read my own writing. Why there you go. Pen? There you go. I do <laughs> carry a pen in case anybody wants to sign a check over to me. Ah, oh, that's good thinking. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, it wasn't until I came across some blind people and uh, they said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'm going to go into the business world. I'm working on a business degree. And they said, now, when you get into this scenario, what are you going to do? And I didn't really have an answer. And what they showed me with it, Braille was the answer. And then they said, you know, you want to write something down really quick. What are you going to do? 
And they said, now if you had no Braille, you could do this. And so I came to understand why Braille would be important and what it would do for me and that it would be another tool in the toolbox. They said, you know, sure, you can use audio if you want. And if your vision is workable in certain situations, you still have that. But you're really taking a tool out of your toolbox that could be very powerful for you. And uh, I wish I would have known that earlier. I wish some educator would have taught me that earlier. But um, I would never look back. Now, I started learning Braille the summer I turned 21. And I, I learned it over the summer. I say I would have learned it faster, except it was the summer I turned 21. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> right, so, really, so, so within one summer, you were reasonably facile with, you know, because well, I always imagined it would, ta- would take me a decade to, to learn it. But Well, I, no, I learned the code. And that's the easy part, right, is yeah. memorizing the code. Memorizing the code, right, but exactly. You, the, the way that you build up speed uh, and um, fluidity with Braille is by reading it. I mean, that's really the only way to do it. And it's interesting as someone who, you know, learned Braille and was able to, you know, observe in myself what I was doing. You know, when you're a kid and you you learn to read, you don't recognize the shift. But when you're doing it at age 21, you know, I was able to recognize when I didn't have to decode a certain word each braille character i had i had observed it enough under my fingers that it just it clicked the shape of the word which of course is what happens to sighted readers also um but because you learn it when you're a child you don't notice that shift so uh just by using braille and using it consistently and every day and working on it that's how i built my reading speed and obviously today i use it in electronic form i use it in hard copy i use it to give speeches i use it for notes i read financial reports with it and uh it it just gives me so many more opportunities when i grew up um in milwaukee and it may still be true each of the high schools had a specialization you know there's a school for the arts there's a a school of communication and broadcasting and i really thought and you could you could apply to what high school you wanted. And I really thought I might go into communications and broadcasting. Uh, I uh, am a baseball fan, love listening to baseball. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, I thought maybe broadcasting. But then I came across a presentation by the school that specialized in business. And they showed students running their own businesses when they were seniors in high school. And I thought, that is for me. I want to be an entrepreneur. So I went to the high school that specialized in business, and I was in the entrepreneurship track. So when I was a senior in uh, high school, I had a little business selling sports cards, um, you know, baseball cards, football cards, that sort of thing. Um, So when I went to the University of Wisconsin, I don't know that I was – necessarily thinking of myself as going into entrepreneurship, but uh, I was really interested in marketing. And um, I I had an interest in marketing. Um, I thought I could be pretty creative and and put things together in, in, in ways that were novel. So marketing was what I was thinking. But really, to get to your question, I had no idea what I could do as a blind person. I had no idea where I could go or what I should expect to be able to do. I, for so long, I had been faking it, right? That um, uh, in some ways I went to college because that's what you were supposed to do. Sure. Uh, if you were somewhat bright and you were, you were supposed to go to college, I didn't really know what kind of future I could have or where I could go or what I could do. And so in many ways, um, I, I didn't have a vision for what I wanted my future to be like in the business world. It's interesting. It takes some, um, you know, it, it's really, it's kind of amazing that we expect people so young to figure it out. Uh, and, uh, and a miracle that eventually, you know, most people do, in fact, uh, find a path. So how do you find your path? Well, so um, a couple of things happened. Um, The first was that I found the National Federation of the Blind, and I 
got a bunch of friends who taught me it was respectable to be blind and what I could do as a blind person and that there were no limits, but not just that there were no limits, how to understand that there were no limits and how to make that actionable in my life. So I got involved with the National Federation of the Blind and I started organizing blind students in Wisconsin. Um, and shortly after that, I became president of the National Federation of the Blind of Wisconsin when I was a senior in college. Um, that put me in an interesting place because I. So wait, I, I've got to pause you there yeah. because because that's the kind of thing that our listeners might just blow by unless I. So sorry, you were a college student and you yes. became a president of a statewide organization. Was that like normal? Was Wisconsin no, just like, yeah, no. we like them young here, uh, or, or 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 was that was that was the other person running who everyone thought going to win, and then they were like scandal ridden or something? Um, <laughs> I, well, uh, I I um, it, it was a big shakeup. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's call it a coup. Uh, it was something. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was something that needed to happen, and I was in the right place at the right time, and I was willing to run. And uh, I would say maybe I was naive enough to and bold enough to think I could do the job, um, but I had the votes, and I got elected. And um, yeah. how many people vote in that election? Is that a, a, a vote of a, of the board or is it just like every blind person in Wisconsin? Like I haven't gotten a ballot for, for this. So t- how does <laughs> well, this work? Uh, for act. Yeah. For members that show up to the convention. So I don't know. Okay. It, was, it was probably 80 people. Okay. Uh, so there's a, so there's a, so the point is there's a convention yeah. and those, well, it's just so funny, you know, because I, I was going to make a joke at the beginning when you, when you said, you know, that you're the president of the national federation. But I said, uh, I was going to say, you know, some, somehow, as soon as I hear the word president, there's a part of me that wants to ask if there's an impeachment, uh, uh, you know, uh, procedure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm well aware that the, uh, members can recall me anytime they're, they can. Better. All right, good. So, we'll keep you on the uh, straight and narrow, my friend. Uh, you know, uh, I, 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 uh, I, I work to be an honest representative, you know, that's good. That's good. All right. So, so the point so, is, so there were problems and there was a, a shakeup yeah. needed and, and, and so you stepped up and, and I, I got stepped up and, uh, got in there and started working on it. And uh, there's a hundred stories I could tell you about that leadership. Just, just tell me the best one. Well, <laughs> uh, so the best one was that I got a job right out of college. And okay. um, I was going to go work for Sears in their national executive trainee program. This was a big deal in retail management 20 years ago. Sure. And this is uh, back when Sears was in Chicago, right? Yeah. And it was, it was yeah. the fast track to retail management at Sears. And it wasn't a marketing job, but I applied for a lot of jobs and got turned down. And um, uh, this was, uh, it seemed like a good path uh, for me. At the same time, I uh, was doing advocacy work. So, uh, helping blind people and getting into things. Well, um, the state of Wisconsin was in the process of examining education for blind children. And the state legislature had passed a bill to reorganize what was the school for the blind into a broader set of services under what it called the Wisconsin Center for the Blind. The School for the Blind was part of it, but it had a broad array of um, educational services for blind youth in the state of Wisconsin. Well, since I was president of the National Federation of the Blind of Wisconsin, we were invited to have somebody on the transition council. I appointed myself to do this job. And um, what I learned was that I really kind of had a passion for education um, and innovative stuff in education. Now, partly that was fueled by I knew everything not to do because that was my educational experience. Uh, So I took ideas from blind people across the country, uh, leaders of the National Federation of the Blind, and I started putting all these ideas into this transition plan. Well, About a a year later, um, the superintendent of uh, public instruction there in Wisconsin was looking for someone to direct this new entity. And they kept looking and looking, and they didn't hire anybody. So finally, I thought, well, you know, maybe I should throw my hat in the ring. Uh, I, you know, I, uh, I know what not to do. 
I'm not saying I know what to do, but I know what not to do. So I applied. I was 23 years old. Uh, I had a lot of advocacy experience, only a year of work experience. I had a business degree. And the interviews were primarily around the transition plan. Well, I knew the transition plan. A lot of the ideas were my ideas. So I got hired to um, direct the $6 million state agency just shy of my 24th birthday. And um, it was a challenge in leadership. Uh, It was a challenge in business administration. I mean, a lot of people don't think of education as a business, but the business background was actually very useful to me. And uh, I had to take my lived experience and try to transform it into something uh, actionable for the the state of Wisconsin and educational services. Mm -hmm. And um, and so how long so so how long did it take to implement that plan and how long did you serve as uh, president of Wisconsin and did you go straight from that to moving up to president of the national organization or did you you know do a, like a four year term and then work on other stuff and then come back yeah so um, i ser- i continued to serve as as president of the Wisconsin affiliate why i worked in educational programs um, for blind children in the state of Wisconsin i worked at the um, center for the blind and visually impaired in Wisconsin for three and a half years. During the time I was there, um, uh, we were basically implementing the transition plan that the state had and and the state legislature was paying close attention to it. So the thing that I'm, uh, there's a hundred things to say about it. The thing that I'm most proud of is that after three and a half years, we had a, um, an audit by the state legislature. The audit had no exceptions. It was the uh, 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 most successful state audit that the agency had had in well over a decade. And we had implemented a lot of the changes that were going to point Wisconsin toward being a, a, a stronger leader in the education of blind children. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided, though, that um, you know, the, the circumstances were changing, uh, the desire for real aggressive um, innovation in that agency wasn't wasn't there as much as it was when I came in in the year 2000. So I started looking around for w- what else to do. And uh, I was fortunate to get a job offer uh, from the National Federation of the Blind to come work on national educational programs just before our organization opened uh, the Jernigan Institute, which is a research and training institute in Baltimore, the only one of its kind um, developed and directed by blind people. Mm-hmm. And so I really helped set up the national um, education programs for the National Federation of the Blind. So my wife, who is also blind, uh, Melissa, and I moved to uh, Baltimore in 2003, and it's been our home ever since. Coming up, where is Mark leading the oldest and largest blindness organization? How does a blind person drive a car? Blind person can drive using non-visual interfaces. How do you think Hollywood's doing? Sometimes it seems like the blind people always have these like magical blind guy powers and stuff. My fate as a blind person is tied up with every other blind person. So what are a couple of, of initiatives or goals or whatever that you think are just most central to the work you guys are doing at NFB? Tell me a little about how uh, you got to be the president of NFB, and and then we'll dig into some other um, initiatives and policy questions and all that that you're facing in NFB. But just you know, t- how do you get from here to there? Well, uh, to give you the one minute version, um, I came to work for the National Federation of the Blind in 2003, and I started building national education programs. And really, what I did was synthesize what what blind people were talking about into programs that, that were needed to make real systemic change in society. And so I basically took on any assignment that the National Federation of the Blind threw my way. And uh, after uh, about three and a half years, I became executive director of our research and training institute, 
Betsy Zaborowski was our first uh, executive director, and she came down with cancer. And uh, so I became executive director. So I took on projects like uh, helping to build a car that blind people could drive, uh, working on technology Mark, projects. Mark, blind people can drive any car. They, we just can't drive it well. <laughs> <laughs> well, we built a car that blind people can drive very confidently, and right. it's proven on, uh, on Wait, YouTube. Right, so now, now, now I got to add. I'm sorry. I don't want to mess up your flow, but how does that work? <laughs> how does it work? Pretty well. well. I mean, so, I mean I, look, in other words, I understand the idea of, a, of an automated, of an autonomous no, vehicle, no, this is which a car wouldn't, that, you wouldn't call that a blind person no, driving. No, no. This is a, blind a car that a, a blind person can drive using non-visual interfaces that have been tested uh, to provide information to a blind person. Okay. And you can, you can go look up on YouTube blind driver challenge and you can see me driving this car at the Daytona international speedway. Anyway, the point is I got, uh, basically I would take on any assignment that came my way. You want me to do something, uh, for the organized blind move? I'll figure out how to do it. Um, so maybe that's that entrepreneurship spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, well, uh, our president uh, of the National Federation of the Blind was Mark Maurer, and he said that he was not planning to run for re-election. And, um, and they only let pe people named Mark do it, so. Well, yeah, <laughs> something like that. I, I, getting back to your earlier question, what did I want to do? Mm -hmm. When I thought about, you know, what am I going to do for the next 20 30 years of my life, and I'm not saying I'm going to serve as president for that long, but just to, generically, there was nothing else more imaginative I could think about doing than, than dedicating myself to the work of the National Federation of the Blind, and I'd, I'd need another hour or two to talk to you about that. So uh, when it uh, came to be time for who was going to run for president, uh, I expressed that I was interested. Um, I um, take very seriously carrying on the work that blind people want to have happen. I travel all over the country. I attend grassroots meetings of, of blind people to hear what they want to have happen. And I, get, I have the best job in the world, which is trying to put the resources together from this talented group of blind people and our partners to change the image of blindness throughout society and, and make things happen that raise the expectations of blind people. Um, so I guess when you say, how did I get there? Well, it was a, in some ways, many decade process of really coming to um, dedicate my time and talents to, to the organized blind movement. And secondly, um, really um, knowing in my heart that um, – my fate as a blind person is tied up with every other blind person. And if I can use my talents along with other blind people, we're going to get a lot further than if I was doing something by myself. So I feel very blessed that I get to serve in this position. It's a challenge every day, but it's also a, a great joy to try to take on some of the challenging areas. We've talked about a couple of them. Mm -hmm. already that that blind people still face in 2019 well so um tell me well for, tell me where nfb say, there's all these initial organizations there's an acb and an nfb and some other stuff out there you guys were first i guess so maybe you'd say everybody else just has to fit in around you but to the extent that there are different roles for these organizations in um in the ecosystem of uh <clears throat> people with blindness and vision loss, where do you see NFB uh, fitting in and, uh, and, uh, and where do you see the other, you know, sort of uh, uh, loser organization? I'm sorry, no, they're fantastic organizations too. We love them all, but, uh, but you know, relative to you guys. Well, so uh, the National Federation of the Blind, we're a membership organization of blind people and we're open to any blind people who want to join. Um, and we represent uh, blind people, whether they join or not. We figure that we're working on behalf of blind people. Now, that presents us with a challenge. We have to continue to transform and be open and welcoming to every single blind person, uh, 
I, I'm proud of the diversity of membership we have in our organization, the perspectives, but it's a continuous challenge, right? To continue to welcome people in and get them to be part of this organization. But we have as a solid value, our um, diversity makes us stronger. And I've written a lot about that in the last two years. So what, so, what, what does diversity mean? Does diversity mean people with different kinds of, of vision loss or does diversity mean people from different aspects? I mean, I know you can say it's all of it, but what are you thinking of when you say the diversity makes us strong? Um, well, certainly different experiences with blindness, certainly different characteristics beyond blindness. Um, you know, we want to represent um, ethnicities. We want to represent that, you know, blindness, the public image of blindness is different based on the other circumstances you come from too. So what we tr strive to do is really be representative of the whole class of blind people. And that, that, includes a lot of diverse mm -hmm. subsets. Now, in the United States, there are something like, I don't know, 500 agencies for the blind. Um, we're not an agency mm -hmm. for the blind. Uh, we're, we're the watchdogs for the agencies mm. for the blind. Um, you know, it, it's our job as blind people to, to, to give the stamp of approval. Hey, you're doing something good for blind people. Hey, uh, you know, you're really ripping blind people off. Uh, there's technology uh, companies that are trying to sell tech to blind people. Our organization, uh, based on um, being made up of blind people, uh, is the objective voice to say, oh, this is a good product, good idea. Here's what you could do better. Or this is a piece of garbage. <laughs> Don't sell this to blind people. Um, so we're at our core, we're a civil rights organization, which is really, really different. I want to be clear than, than these 500 plus agencies that are out there because their job as a nonprofit is to provide programs and services to blind people. We do that, but what we work on every day, all day, is the community of blind people representing the hopes and dreams of those blind people and turning it into reality through policy changes, litigation, uh, partnerships, that sort of thing. So what are a couple of, of initiatives or goals or whatever that you think are just most central to the work you guys are doing at NFB? Sure. I'm going to give you three. Uh, okay. Employment. Um, and, and there's many facets to employment, but you know a lot of people. Oh wait, wait, wait. I got to ask you my employment question. Huh? I always see this stat that 75% of blind people are unemployed. Is that mostly because the vast majority of blind people are older and therefore retired, or is it? Say, or does that stat actually say that seventy-five percent of working-age blind people are unemployed? Because people, journalists just repeat these stats and they don't give you the context, and I don't know what it means. I don't think we know. Uh, I think there's a lot we don't know about what the real um, systemic barriers are to blind people in employment. I do think it's uh, uh, certainly what we say is not just unemployed, but also underemployed. And I uh -huh. certainly think that number holds true for the working age blind. There are a lot of blind people who are underemployed. There's a lot of reasons for that. So first is getting blind people connected with good training and then um, connecting employers with um, blind people who want to be in a variety of jobs and then um, also making sure that just like in education that we have businesses that are not putting artificial barriers in front of blind people. So we have a number of employment cases actively right now where um, companies um, that we will not name, well, I guess we can name them, it's in the press release, like Amazon, uh, mm -hmm. who, you know, says it's an undue burden to to uh, 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 provide accessible workplace technologies when they've built the technologies and they have lots mm -hmm. of money. So there's lots of layers to the onion of mm -hmm. how we work on employment. So employment's a big priority and really rethinking uh, the employment paradigm, getting blind people training. So that's one area. The second is public education. You know, we know that most people still don't know a blind person and most people still have low expectations. When you ask the average person, blindness still shows up in the top three things that people are scared to get. It's right up there with cancer and AIDS. Why mm -hmm. blindness? Uh, mm -hmm. I 
haven't ever had the other two, but I guess I'm I'm thinking that they're not they're not all equivalent. Um, we continue to need to educate the public about the norm the the normal everyday lives that blind people lead, and that blindness is not the barrier. And this I could talk all day about the the impact that negative attitudes about blindness have on society, on employment, on education. So we have a huge job to do, not just getting people to understand the, wow, that's amazing factor. And there are amazing blind people. Uh, Don't get me wrong. They're amazing because they're doing stuff that really, it's amazing any human does them, not because they're blind. But we want people to understand the normal everyday experience of blindness. And so there's a lot of work to be done in just getting blindness to be well understood amongst the general public and um, to make sure that that understanding is there so that when someone starts to deal with vision loss, they understand it's not a tragedy. There are supports out there. Part of that is working with the medical community that when someone starts to deal with blindness, um, the medical community decides they've failed them and they don't really get them connected with the rehabilitation services they need to continue to live their lives independently. The last thing as a priority, though, is we need to continue to build the community of blind people. So once again, we're stronger together than individually. And in 2019, we want to continue to rethink what does a membership organization of blind people look like? How do we share information and how do we use our collective buying power, energy, expertise, and voice to push society in the right direction so that we can pass laws in not just 11 of our states, but all of our states to protect the right of blind parents so they don't have their kids taken away simply because they're blind or hmm. to have... Is that, com- is that common? Uh, it, it, uh, we get a call almost every week about this. Um, and I, and just, just to be crystal clear because of the, uh, the um, ambiguous antecedent problem, the parents are blind and they get their kids taken away or because the kid is blind, they're taken away from the yeah, parents? Yeah, the, the parents are blind. And the parents are blind some, and so society decides they're not capable of taking away yeah, from the Yeah, or um, you know, a social worker um, says, oh my gosh, I, you know, I have a responsibility to protect this child. So uh, it happens in hospitals. uh, It happens in Mm -hmm. schools. Uh, uh, Now, does it happen to every blind uh, couple or blind parent every day? No. Um, But you have uh, a happily married couple where one person is blind and things are going along great until they're not. And the during the divorce proceedings, they say, well, you know, and judge, there's no way you could leave this child with this blind person. I mean, they'll be in I danger. See. And sure. does the judge know a blind person? Well, often not. And so no. they say, oh, God, you're right. Yeah, yeah, you definitely need custody. And, and this happens mm-hmm. more frequently than you would think. So, But it's the community of blind people. It's pulling together blind people um and and leveraging the group of blind people that are out there so that we really have this body of knowledge that we can use to continue to transform society and that's where i talk about diversity and getting more voices into the mix there are a lot of blind people that say i don't want to be part of any organization well that's unfortunate we need them uh we we need their perspective because that's how we change society. That's how we get Congress to move on things. Now, I think we've been successful in the National Federation of Blind and getting a lot done. There's so much more we could do. So membership, building that community, getting those yeah. voices in. And by the way, that's not easy. That that presents some challenges. I mean, I... Well, I, it's hard, you know, but we're, we're all about building that community yeah. here at the Dangerous Vision Podcast, and that's why, uh, you know, you need to uh, promote this podcast uh, hugely, get the, <laughs> get the word out. I'm willing. To, uh, I'm willing. to everyone yeah. on our behalf. Let me... Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you one more uh, question about policy, and then I'm going to ask you for uh, a book recommendation, uh, a book that you love and enjoy, and then, and then I'll, uh, even though I sort of did this to you earlier, I'll give you one more uh, shot 
that I, I like to you know point out to people that says I'm not a professional interviewer. I'm a professor. Um, I probably haven't done a good job eliciting your very best stories, and so I like to give people a chance to tell me their very best story. So I'm teeing that up for you, so you can whirl that around in the back of your mind as I ask you my last policy question, which is: We covered education, and then you did three things beyond, and you didn't say a word about you know curing my blindness. <laughs> so is that outside your bailiwick at, at, at NFB is, is trying to help like make this go away? Because, you know, I understand that, you know, part of it, you know, and, and you've emphasized the sort of civil rights nature of this. And obviously that gets into, into tricky areas. If we, if we talk about people who are in groups that, uh, you know, historically society is not treated fairly, the solution to that is not to say, oh, they, you know, we should just make that group disappear, right? I'm Jewish, you know, I don't think the, the solution to history, historical anti-Semitism is to say, let's just not be Jewish anymore. But um, I think me not being blind anymore would totally uh, cure uh, most of the problems affiliated with my blindness. So is, is that something you guys are involved with or no? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> okay. We're not Good. to the extent that See, I'm not such a terrible yeah. interviewer. That must have been a good question. Yeah. There, there, there are <laughs> there are organizations where that's their goal, right? Is is research, and and we're for that. We support that as long as it's not done to the detriment of blind people who are living today. Um, do the research, but don't do it in a way that says, um, and we really need this urgently because the worst thing you could do is be a blind person today. That's just not true. Um, so that has been the history sometimes. I won't name any groups, but sometimes the way to fundraise to do research around um, uh, finding a cure to various forms of blindness is to, um, you know, show how terrible it is to be blind. Okay, so we're against that, but we're for research. But that's not our role in the world. Our role is to work to elevate the people in society today and, and, and to make sure that there's opportunities for them today. And if that future comes soon, great. But if it doesn't, great, we're here. That's and it, to the extent that we can work together with those research organizations, we're for it. But I, I know people who have gone blind for, from, oh gosh, hundreds of different ways. I don't, I don't think we're going to solve the whole hundreds in my lifetime. And that's unless where, we get that thing Jordy LaForge has on that. Star oh, there Trek. you go. There you go. <laughs> what we don't want, what we don't want is for blind people sitting around today and say, I'm just waiting for a cure. And by the way, there are too many blind people that are sitting around waiting for a cure. And what mm -hmm. we want is to let them know they have lots of life to live while they wait. And we want them to live that life rather than waiting for it. I, I believe in that. Let me ask, since I made the Jordy LaForge joke, do you have any thoughts, because uh, you sort of mentioned the view of blind people, how do you think Hollywood's doing in terms of presenting blind people? Sometimes I feel like, uh, you know, the, 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 the traditional worry would be that we're uh, treated as too helpless, right? Um, but then sometimes it seems like the blind people always have these like magical blind guy powers and stuff, which also doesn't seem very realistic. Now, obviously, I don't expect every portrayal of blind people to be perfectly realistic. It's not like sighted people are portrayed with ultra, with with uh, exacting realism on every television show or, or film, um, but I'm curious as somebody who must uh, think about this, you know, professionally. Do you feel like Hollywood's doing overall a solid job? You give them a B plus, you give them a, a D minus, and uh, and if so, why? Um, they're doing horrible. And you always ask me these questions that take about an hour. They're doing horrible. We have a campaign called hashtag let us play us uh, to try to get the authentic representation of blind people more into the mainstream. Uh, the show in the dark is on CW. We called for them to have a lead uh, blind uh, actor play the blind character. There has never been a blind person play a lead blind character in any television show. That's crazy. That is crazy. Um, now, do we think sighted people could play blind people and that blind people should play sighted people? Sure. But the fact of the matter is the rep representation of blind people in the media generally is horrible, and we have a long way to go. I could talk to you for a long time about that. It's a big initiative of ours. Big initiative, yeah. You may, because of your professional position, have to be careful about promoting or or denigrating any particular technology. But I do always ask every guest if there's any tech things, any adaptive technologies that have just been game changers for them that they want to share with our audience. And especially, you have a privileged position where you may know about some stuff that's either just 
getting there uh, that isn't widely known or that's like underappreciated. So if there's a, like, you know, a number of people have mentioned IRA, which is absolutely amazing. And so, you know, we don't need to get into that because people are familiar with it. Um, you guys are now selling the cane, the collapsible cane by Chris Park Design, which uh, is an extraordinary uh, product that folds down to basically the size of a cigar. And for people who have a little bit of eyesight left and aren't comfortable switching over to be like, oh, I'm blind guy who walks around with a big white cane all the time, uh, has absolutely been, and I mean literally a lifesaver for me. Uh, so that's an amazing product that's sold on the NFB website and that I hugely appreciate. Anything you want to mention or do you feel like uh, it would be it would be unfair to just pick one? Well, uh, not necessarily unfair, but the, the, the truth of the matter is I think it comes down to um, how many tools you have in your toolbox. And the beauty of where we are today with technology is that we have technologies out of the box that have accessibility built into them. So I have sitting here on my desk a Braille display, uh, refreshable Braille display. It's not an innovative display in that it's the same technology we've been using for decades, but it's connected to my iPhone. So uh, while I'm sitting in a meeting, I can uh, write my notes and uh, have them uh, right when I get to my I write them in Braille, and I have them on my desktop when I show up. They're right there in my Outlook client, right? So what we used to do with uh, Braille note takers or that sort of thing, you know, you'd have to transfer a file from here to there, and you'd have to back translate it. You know, the beauty is the integration of different technologies and that we can, when they're built to be accessible, um, we can use those technologies to be as productive or I would say maybe even more productive often than, than, than sighted people. It's, so I, I think the beauty of the age we're in is it's not one technology. You know, it used to be, oh, this is the technology for blind people. It's the integration of those technologies. Or I can use um, IRA when, when a technology is, is not working right or when I need a, access to a piece of information that I just can't readily get I have that tool that I could access, and it's in my control. I can direct it, and I think that's the real exciting time that we're in related to technology. And the important thing is that we as blind people continue to inform the direction of technology going forward. Last question is, uh, I always say to you, if I were a better interviewer, uh, I would have asked you a question to get your very best story, but because I'm not skillful enough at this, um, uh, I probably didn't get it. Do you have a favorite story to tell? If you need to get a, a, a big laugh or, or just uh, really entertain people in a speech or at a cocktail party or, or you know, just something fascinating that's happened to you, uh, tell, us, tell us the best thing you got. Well, I, th I think the story to tell probably is, um, you know, the journey that I went on to um, actually become the first blind person to drive independently a car at the Daytona International Speedway. I do want to hear that story. Um, Let's hear it. So <laughs> it's, I'm going to try to put it into a bite-sized uh, piece because it's kind of a complicated story. Um you know we're we are influenced and and driven by the people around us and um, we in the National Federation of the Blind our our president started telling people you know we need to build a car that blind people can drive and I thought this is a crazy idea uh, <laughs> but it's a it's a good gimmick for getting. Blind for getting blind people into the center of working with engineers. So it's a good gimmick. Well, what happened, I became executive director of the National Federation of the Blind Jernigan Institute, our research and training institute, and I got a call one day from Virginia Tech. And they said, we've seen your proposal to have a blind driver challenge. We want to work on this. Will you come talk to us about it? So I went down to Virginia Tech. This was in 2008. And uh, I sat down with Dr. Dennis Hong, who was a uh, professor of robotics. He's now in California. And they started talking to me about, you know, well, we build, we build autonomous vehicles already for DARPA, and we could just put you in the backseat and press a button and <laughs> declare victory. 
Yeah. That's how I'd have done it. Now, <laughs> I didn't believe I didn't believe in this idea, but I had gotten to know a leader and his heart, his vision, his um, experience with the world, and he thought this was a good idea. So I got up and I said, no, this is not what we want. We want to be able to drive the car. We want to make driving decisions. We want non-innovative, non-visual interfaces that allow us to use the talent we have to, to steer the car where we want. You know, we want to be able to crash the car. Mm-hmm. They said, you want to <laughs> you crash the car? I said, no, no I don't. See, don't. See, once again, I must add, Mark, that, no. that we are able to crash the car. Yeah. Well, I, I told him we, didn't, we don't want to crash the car necessarily, but if it's rigged so that it only works, then forget it. It's not real. We want something that's real. And they mm-hmm. said, oh, that's a harder problem. And, but we started working together, and they didn't know fully what to expect, and we didn't know what to fully expect. And, and I was there. I was the project manager. Okay, that was my job was to help get the resources together to get this thing done. Well, we the first thing we did was build a little red dune buggy that uh, we got with some non-visual interfaces, and we pilot tested it in a youth program. So we're coming back to education that we had here at the University of Maryland. And these 16-year-old blind kids who hadn't heard for two decades like I had, you know, you're a blind person, you're never going to drive. They took to these interfaces and they said, this is great. We need to work on this faster. We need to get this done. And I thought, man, there's something here for us to do. Well, I was working on putting the engineers together, putting the project plan together, coordinating blind people to do testing. And in the midst of it, someone said, well, yeah, do you want to try to be one of the drivers? I hadn't thought about being one of the drivers. I was just the guy putting it together. But I thought, well, yeah, that seems like a good thing to do. At least I should try. Um, and, of course, it, you know, the end of the story is that I ended up being the one to get the nod to do the first public demonstration. And I guess since then have always been known as the blind driver. But, nice. it, but it taught me a lot about that. The interesting things we pursue in life often aren't just because of one of us. Um, You know, there were a dozen, more than a dozen, really, when you think about the funding that went into it, hundreds of people that went into this project. And and I kind of get tapped as being the guy that's known for it. But it happened because of hundreds of people. And I guess I I share that story because I think of so much of what I do on a daily basis speaks to that. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, um, I think when you dedicate yourself to something and you're surrounded by a community of folks that believes in it, there's so much you can do. And I've just been blessed to be in the middle of things like that. (laughs) I know. We really need to do another one of these. I'm going to bring you back soon. In fact, in next week's Dangerous Vision, Randy and Mark continue the conversation. I'm fascinated with education as an educator. Obviously, you're fascinated with education. I think we probably share the view that kind of nothing is more important. So education is complicated, but I, 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 it is the, the major civil rights issue um, for us in this generation. You're listening to the Dangerous Vision Podcast, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired.